How about now? No? Is that low battery? No. No? You're on. It's on your end. <laughs> Do you want me to go to this one? Be happy to go to that one if you want. Or I could just speak loud. There we go. That's on now, isn't it? Sounds, no. Yeah, can you hear me now? Okay. All right, well, good. Good to be here with you guys uh, this morning. This is a, I would say this is a treat. Um... This is a first for me in my whole life. My wife and I have been in lots of churches over the years. Uh, We've been with the mission that we're part of, Ethnos 360. We've been with them for 25 years or more now. So I've had a lot of opportunities to share in churches about what God is doing and with the Hoti work we are in, but I have never, ever been asked to come and update on my son's ministry. And that is about as cool as it gets, in my opinion. So this is, this is new for me, so give me, you know, give me a little slack as I update you on somebody else's work, which, of course, is very near and dear to our hearts. You know, I think back on, uh, this is three, four years ago, when Seth and Caitlin were really focusing in on, yeah, we want to be missionaries. We want to go, you know, to, we want to go with Ethnos 360. We want to go somewhere where the gospel hasn't been. And I remember struggling with the Lord a little bit. Not that they wanted to go be missionaries. I was thrilled about that, honestly. I mean, just thrilled with that. Even though I've, you know, Sharon and I were, were careful never to pressure our, our sons into we think you should be a missionary. No, you, you need to do whatever God leads you to do, and we're all for whatever that is. But when he decided to be a missionary, I remember thinking to myself, how in the world is he going to raise support to go to Papua New Guinea? My faith was put to the test because I would have always said previous to that, well, God will supply. If God wants him there, I said that when I was his age. I was, you know, young and wanted to go to the mission field, and we're like, well, the Lord will provide. We don't know how he's going to, but he will, and he did. And I thought, that's normal. Of course he will. Then I became a grandpa, and my son wants to go and take his family, and I'm thinking, Lord, he doesn't have any contacts in the States except his parents' contacts. He grew up on the mission field. Who, who's going to support him? I know the supporters that support his mom and I, they can't support him. They got, they got all, you know, they got missionaries of their own. They're, they're all stretched. And I, I'm ashamed to say it, I, I truly doubted that they could raise the funds needed to go live in PNG. And the way that God did it, he did it so fast, by the way, they had all their support raised in less than a year, if I recall correctly, something really close to a year, which PNG is, when I say PNG, you know I'm talking about Papua New Guinea, right? That, I say that sometimes because that's the little codes we use in our mission, but I realize some people may not know what PNG is, so forgive me if I say it that way, but 
PNG is one of our most expensive places to go because everything is imported there. A, a box of cereal costs six or seven dollars. You know, it's just ridiculous how how costly it is to live there. And I thought, Lord, how are they going to? And then I saw all kinds of things happen. And one of them was we had a Wyumi event in a church called Alfred Almond. Did I say that right? Alfred Almond. Been practicing that in the car on the way up. I, okay, I don't want to sound like a foreigner. And then I realized it's Al at the beginning of both words, right? Alfred Almond, is that correct? Good, okay. Just trying to fit in with the natives here. Alfred Almond came to Wyumi for a weekend, and my son was hanging around because they were in that area raising support. Struck up a friendship with Mike, and I can't remember who all was there with you guys that time. And your church decided to invite them up, take them on as missionaries, and you've become part of their team, sending them over there. And I saw example after example of how God was using people, not only that we didn't know, but that we would have never guessed he could use to support our kids. And I just want to thank you from a parent's perspective, from a grandpa's perspective, that, you know, you are pouring into the lives of our kids. Now, to me, they're our kids. To you, they're missionaries. I get that. But it's, it's very meaningful to us, and we really appreciate it. There's a, there's a picture of them. Uh, yeah, so I, my wife and I, we took our kids to the mission field when, they were, when our oldest son was only six months old, and the other two hadn't been born yet. And I never gave it a second's thought. What's that like for my parents and her parents. I never thought a minute about that. Well, there are kids, not theirs. I mean, isn't this normal that grandparents don't get to see their grandkids for four years in a row? No, it's not. And I have a a newfound sympathy for any of you who have children serving the Lord out there somewhere in some foreign place where you only get to see them every so It's a killer. And I mean that. I, I, I fully support what they're doing. I wouldn't want them to change what they're doing for anything in the world. But taking them to the airport a year and a half ago to Pittsburgh Airport and holding my oldest granddaughter there to the left in my arms and having to hand her over to her father. I don't want to get teary-eyed here. And she knew what was coming. She knew we, we, she was too young to fully understand, but she knew somehow Grandpa's coming this far and he's not coming any farther. And she had been kind of edgy. And when I handed her, I walked into the airport as far as I could and I handed her to her dad and said something like, well, I guess this is as far as I can go. She physically reacted. No, no. I'm like, oh, brother, I got to get out of here before I lose it. That's, that was hard, okay? But anyway, I wasn't going to get off on all that. I don't know why I am. But we are really thankful that they're over there. And I, I want to give you a little update on their work. And if, if I don't use all my time, I will. I have a, a couple just verses from the scripture I'd like to share with you that ties in with what they're doing. And this is an update. See, it says Konamala update. So to me, updates are informal. So if you have a question about something, Please stop me and ask it, because I'd be happy to answer it. If I don't have the answer, I'll just tell you. I, I say it informal. I feel a little conspicuous when I have this on, and nobody else in the room has one on. 
I only wear these when I think I have to, and I wasn't smart enough to ask Mike, do I have to wear a tie? And Mike would have said no. She said, I look very nice. I'll leave it on for now. I lived with people in the jungle who wore loincloths and nothing else, and I never could figure out why in our culture do we make a piece of cloth that we cinch up really tight around our neck so we can't breathe and call that good looking, you know? But it's what we do, and here I am doing it. Anyhow, let me move on here. So you all know where PNG is, I'm sure, but geographically that's where it is. Do you know that there are 832 languages in that green section? Okay, to the left there is Indonesia. The left half of the island is, is Papua, Indonesia, and Indonesia is a bunch of islands going that way. Papua New Guinea is what you see in the, on the screen there. 832 languages, it makes it the most linguistically diverse place on earth. And most of those languages still to this day don't have a clear understanding of the gospel. At the end of the arrow there, you can see uh, where Seth and Caitlin are working, where the Konamala people are located. I'll get more into detail in that, about that location here as we go through. But Seth and Caitlin left a year and a half ago, January of last year. I just want to update you real quickly on what all has happened in that year and a half. So when they first arrived in PNG, they had to go through what we call a a field orientation. We have lots of missionaries in New Guinea. That's our largest field, hundreds of missionaries there. So they had to learn, how does this work? How do I get my supplies? How do I get my support funds from back home? How do I do all kinds of things? So they went through that period. Then they went into a period of national language and culture study. The national language in PNG is called Melanesian Pidgin. If you've ever heard anybody speaking it, and I've heard lots of... I don't speak it, but I've heard people speaking it. It's very fascinating because I can pick up all kinds of words in there that are English words, but I have no idea what they're saying. Because it's, it's a form of English. I don't know. I Honestly, I don't know its origins, how it actually was developed. But you can hear English in it, but doesn't mean you can understand it. So it took them about five or six months to learn that language. They needed to become fluent in that language because that's the broad language of the whole country, right? But also the people group that they were going to go try to reach speak some of that language, so they would be able to communicate a little bit from day one when they get in there. Unlike, okay, those of you who have been down to Waiumi, your first trip into the village down there, and you, didn't, you couldn't speak any Hoti, right? You, didn't, you couldn't ask me in Spanish, how do you say this or how do you say that? Well, Seth and Caitlin didn't have quite the same experience you did when you came to Waiumi because when they went into the Konamala people, they could speak to them in Melanesian pidgin, tell them why they're here, ask them if they have, if they have their permission to come. So that makes it much easier, but not easy. They went through a bush orientation, which was really going out to a tribal station where missionaries live and learning, okay, here's what missionary life in the bush looks like. How do you get your electricity? How do you get your water? How do you build your house? All that kind of stuff. While that was going on, we were up here shipping their supplies to them. They got invited into the Konamala village. It's a long process how that worked. They had to go in there, make friends with the Konamala people, find out, do you want missionaries to come here? Would you like us to come here? If we come here, where, where could we live? Is there a, a plot of land we could build a house on? All of that stuff had to go on. They built two houses in the last year and a half. They've moved eight times, and now they have begun studying the Konamala 
language. So a lot has happened in that year and a half. I, I wanted to go back to this picture briefly. This picture was taken when Seth was in Bible college still. And the gentleman on the far right here is his co-worker, Luke Hodgden. They both are married. They both have two children. Seth has two girls. Luke has two boys. They're the same age. It's awesome. The kids, the kids love each other right now. We're, we're going to have fun watching over the next 10 years how that develops. You know, Are they going to be friends when they're still in junior high? But so far, they, the kids get along great. But these two guys, when they were in Bible college, they were interested in being a missionary, so they took a trip to New Guinea. And my nephew was a, a missionary as well. I'll tell you, his, his story plays into this a little bit. They went with my nephew, who had already finished a church plant in New Guinea. He's a pastor in the U.S. now, and he was going back to visit the church he planted. And Seth and Luke said, can we come? And they went with them. And the guys in this picture are elders in that church that my nephew Lane planted there in the CR people. And a really cool thing happened when they were there. They're sitting around with these CR elders who are very mature, godly men leading a really strong church in that people group. And those guys started to get direct with my son and Luke. You guys need to go back, finish your training, come right back here. You come right back here and we will tell you where to go. We will tell you what people group needs to be gone to next. We'll help you get in there. We'll go with you and help you make friends and smooth the way politically. It's very political in that part of the world. You, and even in the tribal regions, you've got to have political connections. We'll do all that for you. And then we will oversee your church plant as you do it. We'll be your leaders. I thought that was the coolest thing I've ever heard. Here is tribal church elders saying, we will oversee the whole thing. Well, that really fired up my son and Luke, and they did it. They went back, finished their training, they came back. And here's a picture of them three and a half years later, after finishing their work or their training, going back and teaming up with those same guys to actually do what they challenged them to do. Uh, the guy on the far left is one of the Ethnos 360 uh, missionary leaders as well, part of the picture. And in that picture, there's another people group represented. And here's a map that kind of gives you a better picture of what's going on. That's the, that's the island. The long skinny island is called New Ireland. Okay, it's kind of the farthest east big island in Papua New Guinea. The, the one you see at the bottom of the screen, that's New Britain. And then as you go to the west, that would be the big island of Papua New Guinea over here. But Konomala is just, or I mean, uh, New Ireland is just this long skinny island. And the CR people are located at the southern tip of that island. They occupy a pretty big territory. That's that church I was telling you about. Well, there's another church there called the Potpatar people. That's the name of their people group. And those elders got together with the CR elders and they said, hey, let us help you direct those guys. And they decided that the guys should go to the Konamala people, and that's how that all started. Seth didn't know who the Konamala were before they got there. They had no idea. They said, the Konamala, we, we have enough, the CR elders and the Papatar elders said, we have enough work to do within our own language group to reach all the outlying villages in our language. We will not get to the Papatar for who knows how long. But if you guys come, you go and we'll help you get in there. And that's actually what has played out. It's really 
been exciting to see. Here's a little close-up of, of where their houses are located in the, in the Konomala region. All those white roofs or tin roofs or whatever you see, those are Konomala houses around there. You can see how close they are to the coast. I think they're like a two-minute walk down to the coast there, so they're right on the edge. While this was going on, we were back here packing their supplies, and I'll just throw, go through a few pictures here. I don't want to go down into a lot of detail here, but this was down in Pennsylvania. There's a guy that helped us ship all their stuff. So most of their building supplies we bought in the U.S. because so expensive over there. Some of it they bought over there, but whatever they could buy here, we bought here. And it's actually cheaper to buy it here and ship it all the way to PNG than it is to buy all those supplies over there. When they got there, they, they made it to one of our uh, mission stations there on the island of uh, New Britain here. I'll show you a little closer where that is. Uh, if you can see this star pop up there, can you see that? Okay, so that's where Seth and Caitlin were located at this point, waiting for all their supplies to come trying to make friends with the Konamala and get permission to move in there. All that stuff was going on. And when they finally were able to, then their supplies were then shipped out of that port up to a place called Kokopo by ship, and then they were put on a barge to go around the southern tip of New Ireland and land on the beach there where they're going to build their houses. And that's kind of the going forward, that is the pattern that they will follow for getting their supplies. There's no grocery stores. There's, they're 11 hours, basically, in a vehicle from a town where they could buy any reasonable amount of supplies. So that's not practical. So their supplies are going to be bought, believe it or not, on that big island there to the left and shipped over by barge to them, say, once a month, once every six weeks, something like that. And uh, here's what that barge looks like. It actually, this is a picture of it finally docking on land with their stuff on it. Here's a picture of their water tank that they were, that they're going to collect water. They are collecting water off the roof. That'll be their drinking water and all the water that they need. So then they, they took it by truck to the site where they were going to build, which is, this is just a clearing out of the jungle. The Konamala people had cut their lumber for them. It was already there on site for them to build these two houses. You see the houses going up. They build on stilts there in New Guinea. Where we lived in South America, everything's built on the ground. I always wondered, why do they build up on stilts? I always thought it was because they like to put their pigs under their house, which they all do that, by the way. And I thought, okay, they have a pig pen with a roof over it by putting it under their house. I found out that's not why. They actually build up on stilts because of earthquakes, which actually makes a little bit, it sort of makes sense to me, and it sort of doesn't. You know, if the ground is shaking, why would you want to be 10 feet off the ground in a house? But I guess it helps absorb the shock of the earthquake, but everybody builds on stilts there. I have, I have a little uh, excerpt from an update I want to read to you uh, just real quick. Some of you who get his updates, you might have read this. But as they were beginning their house building, first time in there, they're ready to start putting these posts in the ground, this happened. We got to Konomala a couple days before we planned to start working. On the day that we got there, it started raining. It rained on and off through the night, through the next day, and continued through until the morning that we were planning to start working. As we sat there with our friends from CR, we were each looking at the sky and asking the Lord to stop the rain so that we could get posts set in the ground and begin building. The rain was not slowing down. 
So we all decided to just start working and do what we could. Literally the very moment that we all stood up and started to gather tools, the rain stopped. We all made happy noises and thanked God. Then we looked at the sky and we saw the dark clouds and we asked him to ask God to keep it from raining again. Well, that was Monday morning and we planned to work through Thursday. It didn't rain at all while we worked. Then the exact moment that the last tool was put away on Thursday and we sat down to rest, the sky opened up and started dumping rain. We all started laughing and talking about how awesome God is. We just watched the rain, washed our nasty feet off, and told the story to each other of how God stopped the rain on Monday and started it back on Thursday. We were at the end of our water supply on Thursday, too, and God filled the tank in one perfect rainstorm. You know, that's a little thing, but I'll tell you what, when you're out in the middle of the jungle and you've got a house to build and it's pouring rain, I've been there, it's pretty hard to get out in that rain and accomplish anything. And, you know, the little things, God cares about the little things. I just thought that was really cool. So here's just a couple shots of the house going up. You'll see how they build their houses. Here you can see looking through the window of Seth's house, Seth's or Luke's, I'm not even sure which one is which, but you can see how close the other missionary house is. Uh, so they built both houses simultaneously, exact same blueprint and everything, and uh, the same guys built them. Here's the first stage where they have it under roof and the walls put up and uh, a bunch of CR believers in that picture, a bunch of CR ladies who went there and cooked for them while they were building. There's a, a, the gentleman in the red hat up front is a guy from our home church who went over there. to. He's a builder and he went to help them build and they got it all under roof and a few weeks later, another team of men from our home church down in Pennsylvania went uh, to finish the houses. Interestingly, the guy who's hidden behind the pole, on purpose, by the way, that guy hates his picture to be taken. <laughs> I think that's on purpose. He built our house in, in the jungle 25 years ago. And the guy also on the right, who some of you may have met down at Wyumi, he works at Wyumi. Those two guys helped build our house 25 years ago, and here they are building our son's house on the other side of the world, it's really cool. Uh, a couple of those guys got pretty sick with malaria after they came back. The, the gentleman, second from the right, he made a really poor decision, and he decided to use some kind of natural herb to prevent malaria. Somebody told him it would work. It wasn't me. It wasn't my wife that told him it would work, I can assure you. It didn't work. And after he got back from the trip, he came down with malaria and almost died. His organs really started to shut down, and they had to medevac him to Geisinger. It was, a, it was a pretty big deal. So needless to say, take the right medicine. God provided that truck that you see in the picture free of charge to those guys as well. It's another little miracle that God did. Here's a couple pictures inside the house, finished up. That's a panoramic view, so it's a little distorted you know, and actually seeing the size of it. But, yeah, they just put wood planks down and varnished them. And, you know, the furniture, I guess they bought the furniture there in town and, and shipped it in or they built some of it. Here's the kids' schoolroom, uh, the bathroom. Not so bad, huh? You know, they have running water, catch it off the roof and fills that big tank. And then they pump it from that tank into their bathroom and they have running water. They have a nice shower. That's a pretty nice shower. Nicer than what we had in the jungle, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and here's their electrical system. So they, they're way off the grid out there. There's no, you can't plug into anything. 
So if you don't make your own electricity, you don't have it. So they have solar panels on their roof, and it charges those batteries that are sitting on the floor, and then all that other stuff is what makes that battery power work in your house. I don't want to get into the details of all that. We had a very similar system, though not near as nice. I tell my son, you know, you got it so easy. It's so easy. The beach is 100 yards away. Your electric is way better than ours. Your bathroom is way better than ours was. you got, you know, cell service. Sometimes I kid him because I know it's not easy, but I like to tease him a little bit. So move-in day. They were 11 hours up at the northern end of that long island of New Ireland where our, our mission has a guest facility, and they had to drive in that truck 11 hours down to... Con- when, when they had the houses built and it was time to bring the families in, this is the, this is the day. So Natalie's all excited. And then a couple hours later, Natalie's sound asleep because it's a long trip. And here's the, the first meal in the house. Really cool. Uh, I think that's a pretty momentous picture. They're finally settled in after a year and a half and eight moves through this whole process. Just after they got there, by the way, eight moves. They moved many times during the training as well. The girls got rewarded with a couple little kittens. I mean, what's not to love about that, right? So then, uh, just here two months ago, maybe, the village put on this uh, big feast. They call it a moo-moo. The, they kill pigs, and they cook them underground. And it's a big celebration. And this was, a, this was now that the missionaries have moved in, their houses are built, their little, you know, blonde, curly-haired kids are here, and they're moving in. It's time to have a big celebration, and that's what this mumu was. All the Konamala villages were invited, and apparently it was a huge deal the way Seth described it. You know, they were up all night preparing for it. That, that's a guy sitting on a pig there, one of the other pigs that had to give his life for this special occasion. The guy sitting on the pig is a special guy in this story. His name is Michael. He's a Konamala man. He's the neighbor of Seth and Caitlin and Luke and Eleni. He's the closest guy there. He owns the land that their houses are built on. He's the first guy, when they went in there to explain who they were and what they would like to do, Michael was the first guy to say, we want you to come. I want to hear what you know, God's word says. He's been very receptive and open to uh, what the missionaries are going to come to say. He provided the land. He's, sort of the, he's, their, he's their way in. And he's also now serving as Seth's primary language helper. Okay, and I forgot to tell you this. When I showed you that picture of New Ireland, that long, skinny island, Christianity has been there before. Sort of. I don't know if it was 75 years ago, something like that. A denomination, I don't even remember that which denomination, and if I did, I probably wouldn't say. They, they swept... Over New Ireland, they've sent missionaries in at the southern point, and they went all the way to the northern point, and they went through every village, and they would spend enough time there to show them how to build a structure that they could call a church, and show them how to teach or show them how to sing some songs in English about Jesus, and tell them a little bit about Jesus in the trade language, and then they would move on. And they considered that village evangelized. Cr was evangelized. Konomala was evangelized that way. Patpatar was evangelized that way. When my nephew went into the CR work, after they had been evangelized, they had three churches in their village. They would go there every morning and sing songs like, I can't, you know, Amazing Grace, or what some of our classic 
hymns in English. Had no idea what any of them meant. My nephew said when I asked those guys, hey, can you tell me who Jesus is? They took them down to the beach and they said, see that rock out there? That's Jesus. The rock next to it is his brother, Satan. They thought Satan and Jesus were angels that fell from the sky and that's them out there in the bay. They're rocks. And that's evangelized. And unfortunately, that's, that's what happens when you go into a people group that doesn't know anything about God and you try to explain to them who Jesus is in a language that they don't understand and then you move on. It doesn't work too well. And that's why these guys are building houses. They're going to live there long enough to learn the Konamala language, the Konamala culture, share the gospel in, a, in their mother tongue. And that's what's actually beginning here in these pictures, relationships being built. Uh, language being learned. This was a picture taken when Seth was still in the national language study, but now this is what he's doing in the Konamala work, hanging out with guys. Okay, and it, it's hard to kind of represent what that's really like. It's a little more difficult, a little more involved than just hanging out with people and learning how they talk. Languages are very uh, intricate. They are detailed. They are precise. And they are difficult to learn when you're trying to learn a language that's not your own. And, you know, we, we, we did that, my wife and I, and we can tell you it's the hardest thing we ever had to do in our life. And that's what Seth and Caitlin and Luke and Eleni are involved in. So as you're praying for them, especially over the next couple of years, what's coming up next for the team? Well, the first one is that, culture and language acquisition. This is not going to be a two- or three-month exercise. This is going to be, if things go really well, this is going to be two to three years of them every day, all day, their job is to study the Konamala language and the Konamala worldview culture. They have the added benefit of being able to ask questions in the national language. That's going to speed them up greatly, but it's still going to take a very long time. Because they have to be able to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. That's different than saying, um, I would like some sweet potato. You know, you're getting into high, high levels of, of language. That's Genesis 1.1. Let's go to Romans and start reading Romans. How are you going to say propitiation and sanctification and justification and salvation? And, okay, so their work is really cut out for them, and they're feeling that right now, you guys. They are, my son is feeling it. The limited con- contact we're able to have with him right now, uh, it's very clear he is overwhelmed. And I totally know how he feels. Those first months of language study are overwhelming. As they progress, they're going to have to analyze the linguistic structure of the language. They're going to have to figure out what, an, what alphabet to use to write this language down because it hasn't been written down. As they get farther in the language, they're going to have to teach the Konomala how to read their own language so that when they translate the scriptures, the Konomala can actually read the Bible. Hardly worth translating the scriptures if nobody knows how to read it. So that's another big part of their job. Then they move into Bible translation. And that's going to be whoever, whichever guy on the team, Luke or Seth, get that job, or if one of the ladies get it, if they, whoever learns the language and is a translation kind of personality, uh, they're going to have a 10 to 15-year job there once they begin translating the scriptures to get it into their language. Bible lessons have to be prepared. That's a big job. 
You, you don't want to get to a point in the language where you can teach the Bible and just get up and wing it. It doesn't work too well in a second language. It really can cause a lot of confusion. So they've got to be very careful and prepare Bible lessons. Then they teach those lessons, starting in Genesis all the way through to the, the ascension of Christ and laying the foundations for the gospel. And as believers are birthed, then it's a period of discipleship, teaching these new believers. Okay, we, we don't want to share the gospel, see people get saved, and then say bye. Ha, and have baby Christians sort of crawling around on the ground, all left to their own, with no ability to mature and grow. That would be a disaster. So they've got to disciple these believers. And then they become maturing believers, and they're discipling maturing believers till the point where they have the ability to appoint elders who can take over the work themselves. And then the missionaries will finish the translation and move into an itinerant ministry. So that's what's in front of those guys. That's, if things go really well, that's 12 years, 15 years probably of work, if things go really well. So you know how to pray for them as, as it progresses. I wanted to lay that out for you for this reason. I know some of you have more of an understanding of specifically the kind of work they're going to. But I'll tell you from our personal experience, my wife and I, when we came home on our first home, you know, home leave after being in the tribe, been there a couple years, and we come back to our supporting churches like Seth and Caitlin are going to come back here. So how's it going down there? It's going great. It's going great. Well, how many Christians are there? Um, none. We haven't even been able to share the gospel with them yet. What? Why are we supporting this guy? Two years down there, hasn't shared the gospel with anybody? Yeah, because hasn't learned the language well enough yet to share it in a way they can understand. Right? And then after that, how much work is in front of them after there are believers established? So that when Seth and Caitlin come back 10 years from now and they're still in the Konamala work, you know, you're not wondering, why are you guys still there? Haven't you moved on to another people group? No, we want to see a church in Konamala like Alfred Almond Bible Church. Their own leadership, maturing believers who worship together like you did this morning, teaching each other, taking the gospel out all through their territory. Short of that, it's not done, so it's going to take a long time. I have a message here from Seth, a text message. So that I'm, it's for you, I'm going to read it to you. But their, their ability to communicate with the outside world is very limited right now. There is a cell tower somewhere in that region, but it is from, we're learning, they've been in there two months now, we're learning it's, it's inoperable way more than it works. I think it's only been one or two of the weeks that they've been in there that they've been actually able to send out emails. Because this cell tower goes down and then they, somebody has to haul fuel into it and it's just a mess. But he has, a, he has an emergency device that he can send texts on, very short texts. And I noticed he only allows me to have access to that, not his mother. <laughs> she, can't, she, she doesn't even get the text. She can't write texts to him. I think that's Seth saying, Mom, you can't talk to me this way. It's, it's too... It's too cryptic. I think it's too expensive. So he'll send me out a one-sentence text. Hey, we're all okay, whatever. But I told him through that, I said, I'm going up to Alfred Alman this Sunday. They asked me to come give an update on you. You got anything? What can I tell them? So I got this text. 
It's cryptic, okay, because of the situation. Our early days of CLA are long, grinding with lots of unknowns. We're always encouraged when you check in with us and we know that you're praying each time you meet. That means so much and we feel more connected to you guys than to most of our supporters. The spiritual battle is more real than we would have ever thought or that we have ever felt before. Language is overwhelming. The urgency is strong. We just saw our first burial ceremony yesterday. Darkness and confusion cover everything. We love you. We can't thank you enough. Okay, so that's as of yesterday. I got that text yesterday morning from Seth. For you all, I wanted to share that with you. Okay, so that gives you a little update on Seth and Caitlin. I know that uh, you guys are following them closely, and you'll be getting more information as he's able to send it out. Seth and Caitlin are part of a bigger team, the Ethnos 360 team. And uh, is that up there? Yeah. Mike asked me to just give a little bit of update on that as well. So the circles represent the regions of the world where our mission works. And, of course, Seth and Caitlin are down there in that PNG Indonesia region. The blue countries, those are all countries that are part of kind of the Ethnos 360 family. They either are sending missionaries or they're fields that receive missionaries. Uh, We have about 32 countries uh, that are working together with Ethnos 360, what we call our global partners. So it's a big organization, about 3,000 or so missionaries worldwide that would be part of that collection of missionaries. And about 45% of those missionaries come from the U.S. here with, with Ethnos 360. And that's the sending agency, of course, for Seth and Caitlin. So lots of tribal works going on all around the world, uh, Konamala being one of them. I saw this statistic. I'll just share this quickly and, and move on. But when, when Ethnos 360, formerly New Tribes Mission, when it was founded back in 1945, almost 90% of the world's missionaries were coming from the West, and most of them the U.S. Today, 37% come from the U.S., 63% from the or from the Western countries, 63% from the non-Western countries. So you're seeing a huge shift in where, in where missionaries are coming from. There's good to that and bad to that. Part of it is the U.S. church is losing interest. Okay, it's harder for us to get missionaries. But, but the flip side of that is other churches in other parts of the world are getting the missionary fire and sending missionaries out. So that's really cool. I also wanted to show you this. Uh, Alfred Almond is one of 5,347 churches that make up the Ethnos 360 team, you might say. Those are churches that support Ethnos 360 missionaries, 5,347. It's an amazing number to me. Very thankful for that. Uh, There's all those missionaries out there because of churches just like you that are behind them. There's no other way this could work. So I have just a few minutes left here. And I want to wrap up. I'm, I'm not going to preach a sermon, I promise. But I do want to share a verse. What's it all for? Why? Why are you guys supporting Seth and Caitlin? Other missionaries that you support, I know they're not the only ones you support. Why, why Ethnos 360, all these missionaries around the world? I just want to focus on this one verse. Jesus said to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Very familiar verse to us. He's talking to Peter. Peter's name means little stone, right? You are little stone. 
And on this rock I will build my church. And of course, there's all, there's people debate who, who did he who did he mean was the rock? And I'm convinced that he's saying he himself, Jesus, on this rock. The verses just before this. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, yeah, and you're a little stone, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the historical context. I love the historical context of things like that, as, like this verse. Jesus was in a place called Caesarea Philippi when he said that to the disciples, which was a very unique place. Uh, it's kind of north, northern Israel there. Most Jews who were God-fearing Jews stayed away from this area because it was a very heathen, dark place. It was considered a place of lots of demonic activity. How real that was, how I don't know. But that's what it was considered to be. And there's a cave there. Here's a picture of it. Uh, there's a big, huge mountain rock there, and at the base of it is this cave. And there's a pool in there, a deep pool. In fact, when you start looking into the history, uh, they, they never were able to find the bottom of this pool. They would send stuff down on a rope, you know, go down. Never could find the bottom. So the locals believed that this was the pathway to hell. This is where the demons come up and go down. And guess what the name of that cave was? the gates of hell. Jesus had his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. He took them up there to this place, like the heart of enemy territory. And in my imagination, I see Jesus. I don't know if they were, it doesn't say in the text if they were like right at this place, but that's the that's the location, Caesarea Philippi, where they were when that conversation happened. And I can see Jesus doing this. Yeah, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't stand against it. And he, I can imagine him pointing at this mountain. Even if he didn't, all those disciples knew exactly what the gates of hell. They all knew what that well was called. In fact, there was a temple there back in the day. This is a picture of it. The God Pan lived there, supposedly. This was his up and down from beneath coming place, you know. Very, boy, I don't even want to tell you some of the stuff that I read about how they worshipped in that temple. Just gross, grotesque stuff that was going on as they worshipped the god Pan. And Jesus is there. Maybe not right there on those steps, but somewhere right in that area, close to this place. And he's saying, the gates of hell will not... I will build my church, and hell won't stop it. And I think, okay, that's pretty relevant to what we're talking about this morning. Because the gates of hell, I just use that term, okay, how, how it's used there. They're still very much intact in many places in the world today. And one of them is Konamala, where the gates of hell are up. No gospel has ever penetrated through those gates. Nobody behind those gates has ever heard who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He died to take your sin debt for you. You trust Him and you'll be His. 
Never heard anything like that. And you guys have sent Seth and Caitlin to Konamala to breach the gates. And how are they going to breach the gates? Not through anything they do. Not through their strength. Seth isn't going to walk up there and take a sledgehammer to the gates of hell. No, but you know what will penetrate? The truth. The gospel. When they're finally able to learn the language of the Konamala people and share it with them in a way that they can understand, it's like the light of the truth smashing through the gates. The gates are defensive, right? They're not offensive. We don't throw gates at the enemy. We put gates up to keep the enemy out. The enemy has put gates up. And the way to penetrate those gates is by the sharing of the gospel. And to me, I just get really excited thinking about what's going to happen, what you guys are going to get to witness over the next few years as you follow this story through. Lord willing, right? If they're able to stay there, if all goes well, you're going to get to see the gates of hell breached in a new people group through a missionary that you sent out. I don't know if that just gives me chills to think about. I'll quit with this, that, that word. I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia, was the word he used. We think of a church as a building with a steeple, right? That's not what the word meant. The word meant a calling out, an assembly. I will build my assembly, and the gates of hell won't stop it. An assembly of who? From where? For what purpose? I believe it's an assembly of disciples from all nations for a bride to present to Christ. You follow the New Testament story through to the, to the culmination in Revelation, that's what you see. A bride, a perfect bride that the Father presents to the Son. The, we're part of it, right? We're all, we're, if we're believers, we're part of that bride that he's going to present to the Son, and it's a complete bride. If you look in Revelation chapter 5, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are going to be part of that group. Konamala are going to be there. And you're going to have a part in the Konamala being there. That's what's cool. Can you imagine the father presenting a bride to his son that's not complete? You know, missing her right ear. Or missing the little finger on her left hand. Okay, that's, that's how my silly brain works, but I think that way. No, it's going to be a complete bride. And every people group that God created is going to be part of it. And we're getting to see that happen right now with the Konamala. So I, I'm going to stop there. I thank you again for inviting us up here. Real privilege to be here with you. We really mean that. And uh, we look forward to a relationship with you guys as we go forward here with our kids and your missionaries. And come back down to Wyumi. We'll see you down there again sometime. But thank you, Mike, for inviting us up and for giving us this opportunity. It's a real privilege. We mean that. Father, we thank you for... Alfred Alman Bible Church in the ministry that you have given to this church locally as they are reaching the community around them and influencing the community around them through the uh, salt uh, of the gospel and the salt of their lives as they interact in this community and as they are sending the gospel out to other parts of the world. And we're speaking specifically this morning of the Konamala Outreach what a privilege to be partners together. It's just a thrilling thing uh, that we get to be here this morning talking about this. And I pray for Seth and Caitlin, Luke and Eleni, 
the girls, uh, Natalie and Lauren and, and Noah and his little brother who I've... James, thank you, Sharon. James and Noah. As they adjust to their new life there in the village, uh, as they begin language study, Lord, give them endurance, give them faithfulness, give them the energy to get up every day and go out their door and stumble and bumble around through trying to learn language and give them the ability that they need, Father, to become effective communicators in that language. I pray that you will continue to work in the hearts of men like Michael and the people that live around there, drawing them, Lord, to yourself through the relationship that they have with the missionaries, that when that gospel is finally able to be shared, those people will be very open to receive it. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we have your word in our language and we can talk about it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to sing.